Well, if you're a visitor here today, we all want to welcome you. We're uh, in the middle of a study of the Gospel of John. We've been here a few weeks. We'll be here for, I don't know, one or two more. In John chapter 6, what we've witnessed thus far is the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. The account opens up with Jesus feeding a multitude of 5,000 men. And along with women and children, it would have been 10, 15, perhaps 20,000 people. Immediately following, he orders his disciples to get into a boat and go to the other side of Galilee. They get into that boat as the sun was setting, only to face an enormous windstorm. In the midst of that storm, Jesus walks on the water and he approaches his disciples in the middle of the night. He gets into the boat and immediately they arrive on the other side. During this time, Jesus had been dispelling disease from throughout all of Galilee. And in response, there was this large mass of people following him around. They wanted to make him king, in chapter 6, verse 15. When they wanted to make him king, or when Jesus perceived that they wanted to make him king, Jesus departs, he goes up on a mountain to pray. He proceeds, as I said, to walk out into the water. He's at the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They follow him. They're persistent in their pursuit of following Jesus Christ. But Jesus did not applaud them for following or seeking him out. There was no patting them on the backs with congratulatory recognition of their seeking Him out. But rather, He exposes their motives for following Him. The motives were superficial, outward. This was not a product of true belief. They were not seeking Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus said, you seek me because you were stuffed with food yesterday and now you're back for another load. In verse 26. Paraphrasing that verse. They wanted more bread. They wanted free health care. They wanted to perform works of righteousness themselves. They had a desire to earn their salvation. They wanted to do the works of God. People today want to do the works of God. People today think that they can add something in their life to be saved. They can do something to be right with God. That's the essence of pride. Jesus said the only acceptable work is to believe on Him, to feed on Him. He's the very bread of life. He is it. Then they went on to proceed to ask Him to perform a sign. What sign will you perform then? If, as if feeding 15 or 20,000 people weren't enough. They wanted literal bread every day. As God provided manna in the wilderness through the leading of Moses and the Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years, manna came from heaven every day of the week. Twice as much on the sixth day to provide for the Sabbath day. But Jesus concluded, as we wrapped up last time in verse 40, that there is one way to everlasting life. It's through Him alone. That is it. There's no bread from heaven that will sustain anyone forever. 
Because those that ate that bread, they're all dead. They never entered the promised land, the majority of them. So this great mob is being revealed for what they truly are. They're superficial believers. They are not true believers at all. Many people profess to be Christian today that are no Christian at all, according to the Bible. So Jesus is exposing their mere external faith. This is a facade. This is a veneer. It's outward. As we continue in our study, their unbelief of Christ is revealed through the scorn that they have regarding His teaching. The question is, why didn't they believe? Why don't people believe today? Why throughout time have not people believed in the one and only way to life? Why do people reject the glorious cross of Christ? Why do most people become so unyielding to the truths of Scripture? Why do so many people say with their mouth, but don't do with their life? Why do the majority of people become harder and harder in opposition to the gospel the older they get? Why have I been at the bedside of so many older people presenting the gospel when they were moments away from death and they reject the truth of the gospel? Why? Why do so many appear to believe for a while and walk away? The reason people do not believe will be revealed through our study this morning. As you open to John chapter 6 and we read verses 41 to 51. Verse 41. The Jews then complained about Him. Because He said, I am the bread which came down from heaven... And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I ask that you open the hearts of everyone in here today to understand, to grasp, by your grace, the glorious, glorious doctrines of grace that save mankind, that save those who believe. 
Father, for anyone here today who's unregenerate, for anyone here, Lord, who's deceived into thinking they're a believer when they're not, I pray that you'd invade their life. I pray that you convict them to the core. And I pray that you will grace them with the ability to truly believe, to repent, and to turn to Christ, your Son, with all that they are. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's three points in the bulletin to observe this morning. The first is, we see in verses 41 to 43, the spring or the breeding ground of unbelief. Point two in verses 44 to 46, we see the sole remedy for unbelief. And then finally in verses 47 to 51, the dividing line of belief and unbelief. Very unlikely we'll get to point three today. There's always next week, amen? It's the blessing of going verse by verse. The context, John chapter 6, the context is controversy. The assumption of these superficial followers of Jesus Christ has led their unbelieving minds to a great messianic misunderstanding. The teaching of Jesus revealing himself as the very bread of life is very confusing to this group. Because all they want is Christ for the physical the outward. They want literal bread, physical bread, that feeds their stomachs. They've inquired of Him to do more signs. They desire of themselves to do the works of God in verse 28. And their theological misunderstanding here is that salvation comes by works, dependent upon their own self-righteousness. Something that they do. Something that they add. But Jesus destroys their smug delusion of self-effort with ego emi, I am. I am. First person, singular, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Me, alone, I am it. Their reply, whatever. Just give us this physical bread. Just keep on giving us this bread and we'll follow you. Keep fixing us when we're sick. Keep healing us. We'll follow you. But the problem with this gang of thrill seekers is that all they're looking for is a miracle. But the problem is that they're looking for the wrong miracle. Sign seekers, those who simply seek the signs of Christ, those who simply seek the hand of Christ, miss what the hand or the signs point to. The signs, the miracles, and the wonders were to point to the source of the miracle, the Messiah, the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life. They pointed to his mission and messianic work of salvation. But rather than bowing in humble submission, repentance, and adoration, they begin to grumble. And here we now see, in verse 41, the spring of unbelief. Think of it as the breeding ground of unbelief because it'll just this unbelief will just keep breeding itself over and over through the end of the chapter where they eventually depart. Verse 41. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Now this statement, for I came down from heaven, this really troubled them. Now you have to understand, remember, that they're in the synagogue of Capernaum. So in the synagogue, you would have religious leaders. Now, the religious leaders would have been stirring up this strife for certain, as they have throughout the rest of the Gospels, as we read the different accounts of the Gospels. Their problem was that they understood what it meant to come down from heaven. To say that you've come down from heaven is to declare deity. That you're God. 
That's a problem. Now, notice it says the Jews. Now, this expression, the Jews, is frequently used in John's Gospel and commonly used in describing those who oppose Jesus. It's most often used to speak of Israel in their hostility towards Jesus. And here now we see this indication of breeding hostility that reproduces itself, as I said, to the end of the chapter. They complained. They grumbled, murmured. And that's what stubborn hearts do. Stubborn hearts breed grumbling mouths. They're, un they're unable to see beyond the physical. They can't comprehend the fact that this is true bread come down from heaven. He's the only source of spiritual life. They're thinking physical, physical, tangible. That which feeds my flesh. That which makes me satisfied here on earth. Their idea of Messiah was a king that would come in and deliver them from the oppression of Rome. Because they couldn't see the kingdom, they missed the king. It was all physical to them. So they start to murmur. They start to grumble. This reveals the condition of their heart. This is not the kind of soil that's conducive to receiving the seed of truth. Dave opened up in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. The seed is the word. The seed's always good. The problem's with the condition of the soil. There's only one good kind. And that one good time receives it and from, from out of it grows and reproduces some 30, some 60, 100 fold of fruit. They become irritated at this point. They've been following Jesus around. They're irritated. He proclaims to be the bread from heaven. They say, bread? He's referring to himself? Their pride is chafed here. Agitated. It's never ever the miracles of Jesus Christ that cause hatred against Christ. Ever. No one ever refuted the fact that Jesus did miracles. You'll never find it. What irritates these people, what, what causes such strife and anger, is the independent claims that Christ makes. The claims He makes of Himself after doing and performing the signs and the miracles, you see. You know, so long as He's healing everyone and, and feeding everyone, nobody's moaning, nobody's complaining, there is no grumbling. But as soon as Jesus begins to make ultimate claims... They want to seek more signs. They want to see Him make the, the stars dance around or something. And then they begin to grumble. In verse 42, And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that He says, I have come down from heaven? See, now they're offended. The gospel offends. The gospel, the true gospel, very, very offensive. When people are offended by truth, what do they resort to? Personal attack. Oh yeah? Well, you're ugly. Brilliant, isn't it? Oh yeah? Well, 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 well you're just stupid. Isn't this Jesus? Now the guy they've been following around, seeking Him, seeking Him out, going across the Sea of Galilee, seeking Him out. Hey, by the way, you who profess to be the bread of life, Hey, guys, isn't this Jesus whose mother and father we know? You know, the carpenter? So here we see where familiarity breeds contempt. Contempt is scorn. It's hatred. It's disrespect for what or who they think they know. 
Jesus was rejected in his own hometown, Nazareth. Remember, he goes in there, he's in the synagogue, he preaches from Isaiah. He says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the reality of this truth. They didn't bow down, get down on their knees, Messiah, Savior of the world. No, they ran him out of the synagogue and brought him to the, the cl a cliff and wanted to throw him over. But it wasn't time for him to die, so he escaped. Imagine what it was like. They're reaching out to grab him, he's gone. He just slipped right out. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 57, that a prophet is not without honor. Anywhere a prophet goes, he's going to receive honor. Except in his own country, except in his own house. You know, oftentimes in the minds of people, for someone to be an expert, they have to be from out of town and carry a briefcase. And much of the problem with the church today is sometimes, and oftentimes, the church has great spiritual godly people right under their noses, right around them, and they miss it. They're looking for the, for the expert from out of town. In the midst of a Bible study, some home Bible study, some great leader who loves the Lord, who knows the truth. He's not asking for opinions, he's proclaiming truth for the benefit of those who are in Christ. Someone who's a great mentor, a great discipler, an example, and they totally miss out because they're waiting for some dude to roll in with some special message, some sign, some miracle. The Son of God was living and walking within the dusty roads of Galilee, and they missed Him. People are no different today. They'll accept Jesus as the miracle worker. They'll accept Jesus as the good teacher, the great rabbi. They'll accept Jesus as the one who, who taught great moral ethics. But don't tell me that He's the way, the truth, and the life and that there's no other way to God. Don't you dare tell me that. Well, I'm not telling you that. He said it. The bone that anyone wants to pick is with Him. Not with the preacher, not with the brother or sister in the body of Christ. He said it. The bottom line here for this mob, they simply do not believe. They don't believe. Verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. The well of unbelief springs up from within, produces grumbling, and then Jesus rebukes it. He says, Stop it. Basically, shut up. Come on, somebody. I'm super happy today. I'm super passionate. This is heavy stuff we're into today. So I'm going to ask that you follow me. Stay with me. Not only was there grumbling, insulting, not only was it very dangerous, it was also very insulting. This is the Son of God. And this presumes that the divine revelation of God can be sorted out by finite human thinking. Well, wait a minute. Isn't He, you know, the Son of... Well, He's done all these miracles. He's performed all these signs pointing to who He was. And then now they want to try to reason among themselves. You know, so long as man is content and confident in his own ability, he can't come to the Lord and believe. He cannot. Only, now get this, only the Father can move a sinner to repent and believe and to embrace Christ. There is no human being throughout the world, throughout any given time in history, that has the ability in and of himself, in and of herself, to come to Christ any time they want. They do not have that ability. So, why don't people believe? The reason? 
They can't. They cannot believe. So now we move from the spring of unbelief to point number two, the sole remedy for unbelief. The only cure for unbelief is revealed through verses 44 to 46. Verse 44, the words of Jesus Christ, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus rebuked the people for their grumbling and he told them that they have no ability to come to him unless the Father initiated the action. You've got to remember, they're seeking Jesus. They're not seeking him to know him. Their churches are filled today, right at this moment, with people who are seeking Jesus for every other reason other than the saving grace of the cross, the shed blood of Christ. They can't believe. Now here in verse 44, we have what's known as the universal negative of the gospel. Universal negative of the gospel. The idea of verse 44 is the negative counterpart to verse 37 that we looked at last time. Look at verse 37. Jesus said, All that the Father gives to the Son, what? Will come to Him. Now that's the universal positive statement of the gospel. The universal positive statement of the gospel is verse 37. All that the Father gives will come. It's a guarantee. Now we know that not all people come to Christ. Now what does that reveal for us? That not all are given. Because all that are given will come. It's a guarantee. Now, stay with me today. This is really heavy teaching. And this, this thinking, which is biblical thinking, is contrary to human thinking. We are called by God's grace to line up under the authority of Scripture to take whatever thoughts we have about God and to line them up with His Word. To submit ourselves in humble submission to the authority of Scripture. So I'm going to ask that you follow me here because this is a very hard teaching. The entire ch chapter 6 of John is very difficult teaching and it, as a matter of fact, at the end of John 6 he says, who can understand these things? And they left him. So here we have a universal positive, a universal negative, and verse 37 is an absolute non-conditional statement. All given will come. This is guaranteed. This is a guarantee of the coming of those that are given. This is known as the effectual calling. The general call of the gospel goes out to all. But not all will respond. Those that will respond have been affected within. That's the effectual calling. That God transforms the heart, the life of the person to bring them to Himself. In other words, the living active Word of God has an effect to transform their life in turning them into believers. It's the effectual call. Now, it's been well said, you might want to write this down, that verse 37 and verse 44 must be seen as the bookends of the Gospel. All. Verse 37. All given will come, all that come I will not cast out. Verse 44, no one can come unless the Father draws and I will raise him up the last day. Now, many, many people are deceived in thinking that they can just lay back and that they can simply come to Jesus whenever they want. Well, you know, I'm going to go sow some wild oats. I'm going to live my life like I want. I know the gospel truth. I'll just roll up to Jesus whenever I want. Later on in my life, let me tell you something. You're deceived if you believe that. 
Man has no ability in and of himself whatsoever to come to Jesus Christ. And the reason is because it's the condition of our nature. You and I have sinful natures. If you're in Christ, you've been given a new nature. But prior to Christ, you have a sin nature. The only thing that nature knows how to do is to sin and to oppose God. Now, to understand the meaning of this text, it's very clear what this says. And it means what it says. But for us to be able to grasp it and grasp the depth of meaning as to our inability to come to Christ, it's critical that we understand the consequences of our sinful condition. Okay? And to do that, we have to go back in our minds to the beginning. In the beginning, God created man. God created man in his own image. And in his image, he created the male and female. He created them in his very own image. Image bearers of Almighty God. Perfect, holy, righteous, set apart. They had a perfect union and perfect communion with the living God. Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with God. Humanity was created without sin. They were perfect in form. They had a perfect holy union, perfect communion. And they had the ability to grow in knowledge and ability. Imagine that. In the presence of an infinite God, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, but their growth wasn't stifled. They would still grow as they were in the presence of an infinite God. They would continue to grow, never becoming infinite as God is. But their potential was unlimited. Imagine. That's what it was like. Until sin entered. When sin entered, it totally ruined. It ruined in total, absolutely, this sinless nature. The perfect communion and union they had with God was severed. A great deviation has occurred from God's original design of humanity. It's called sin. Sin is the very imposter that distorted all of mankind. Destroyed. The very thing that was once altogether abnormal to the image bearers of God, sin, was totally abnormal. It destroyed that nature and made the sin nature become what we know now as being very natural. That's why the Bible says the natural man cannot understand the things of God for their foolishness to him because they're natural. If you're in Christ, he has supernaturally changed your nature into the image of Christ, a new nature, you see. So humanity was created in the truest sense to be without sin. And that has been perfectly exemplified through the coming of Christ out of heaven as a human being. The God-man. Therefore, for those of us who are in Christ, when we die, we will be made human in the fullest sense. Recreated in Christ. And all of that will be restored. Body, soul, and spirit, totally restored. Perfect union, and you have a perfect union in Christ if you're with Him now. But, but you haven't reached glory yet, amen? Perfect, sinless form. You never become little gods, but will be recreated perfectly in Christ. Sin has corrupted man. And sin has corrupted man, not only in part, brothers and sisters, but sin has corrupted man totally, completely, 
entirely. It's very important that we understand this so that we grasp the meaning of this verse. This entire chapter. We are not merely tarnished with a sin nature. Many people teach that today. Well, we're tarnished. No, we're totally, absolutely, spiritually dead. There is no ability that any man or woman has in and of themselves to desire, approach, or honor God in whose very image in which we are created. There's no desire. There might be some superficial desire like these seekers. They were coming after Christ, but Jesus revealed their motives. He exposed them for what they were, superficial. The nature of man is so far removed from what it was in the garden that man has no ability whatsoever to change or restore that nature whatsoever. You can't do it. It's in total ruin. You can't even assist in that change. You cannot assist God in that transformation. So, if mankind, in his sinful condition, is simply viewed as being merely weak, and just in need of assistance from God, maybe a little bit of divine help, a little bit of divine dust to help change that nature, to where we cooperate with God in His own effort to get to heaven, then the solution of need is minimal, isn't it? It's minimal. We just need a little bit of help from God. There's enough good in me. Right? There's enough good in me. If I just get a little help from God, I can be right with Him again and I can get to heaven. We share in the effort and we can save our sinful condition from hell and torment. And then the sinner merely asks for assistance and what he lacks, he thinks he can save himself with a little help from God. That's taught today, whether you know it or not, and that's wrong. It's wrong. Man is not tainted. Man is absolutely defiled. His nature is totally corrupt, totally depraved. So if, on the other hand, man's condition is much more severe than that, meaning that he's helpless, hopeless, spiritually blind, powerless, and altogether dead, then the help he needs is much different than just a little assistance, isn't it? He needs life. So the solution is of a totally different kind. Crying out to God for every bit of salvation to be all of His and to understand that it's all of Him. It's not part God, part us. Now for the past 200 years, the predominant view of evangelical Christianity is that man only needs God's partial assistance in saving himself. In other words, what it boils down to is that the majority of professing, professing believers to agree today with one another that, now, and I believe that some are really ignorant of this, but the majority of professing Christians believe that if they cooperate with God, that they can be born again. If they don't cooperate with God, they can't be born again. So if they come and cooperate with God, they can be born again and go to heaven. If they don't cooperate with God, they won't be born again and they'll go to hell. This is not biblical thinking. The Bible does not teach this. Now I understand that some of you probably sit here today and you agree with that. But scripture proves otherwise, so I'm going to ask that you bear with me through this difficult but true teaching. But the question is, why is this distorted man-centered view, man view so prevalent today? Because this is the common thinking of the day. And to understand and grasp where it came from, we want to do a little church history. Okay? 
So before we get back to the verse, I want to do a little history. In 1609, James Arminius, a Dutch theology professor, died. In 1610, a group of his followers, a group of his disciples, formulated his teachings and they drew up five articles of faith. This group came to be known as Arminians. They insisted that what all the major Protestant churches had subscribed to and taught, known as the Reformed Doctrines of the Belgic and Heidelberg Confessions, that they were an error and they needed revision particularly in regard to the salvation of man. So they came up with these five articles. They taught that man's will determines who God elects. So they said, well, God is going to choose those who will to choose Him. Okay? Who's sovereign in that point? Man or God? Man. That's error. That's an erroneous teaching. They, they taught that Christ died only to make salvation possible rather than certain who everyone who Christ came to die for will be saved or he failed on the cross they also taught that God's divine will could be obstructed by man so that man down here on earth could obstruct that which God wants to do in his sovereign omnipotent power so therefore who's in control man or God man would be if God's subject to man and then they also went on to teach that salvation could be gained but lost. And it's true. If man adds something, brings something to the table to earn salvation, then he can certainly lose it, can he? The Bible teaches that those who are in Christ have what kind of life? Everlasting life. How long does that last? Forever. And ever. Amen? Come on, somebody. This is exciting. So in response to that erroneous teaching, a national synod which is an advisory council within the church convened in Dort in the Netherlands in 1618 to examine the views of these Arminians in light of Scripture. So they took these views and they lined them up with the Word of God. There were 84 members in attendance from five different countries and they met in 154 sessions over a seventh month period of time. They took this very seriously. After careful examination, the five points of Arminianism were found to be contrary to Scripture and heretical. Heresy. This very heresy is what is the major common teaching of most churches today. This group did not believe it enough to merely reject the teachings. So due to the heretical nature of the teachings, they came up with five corresponding articles to positively set forth the scriptural teachings of these fundamentally important truths. Okay, are you with me? Subsequently, these five points became known as the five points of Calvinism. In honor of the French theologian John Calvin, who, by the way, was in the grave for 54 years when this happened. He had nothing to do with it. He was dead. But he taught throughout his life and ministry, and there's been, never been a greater preacher in, in, in the last hundreds and hundreds of years than Calvin. He was dead for 54 years. The five points are known by the acrostic T-U-L-I-P. Tulip. 
Okay, I'm not here to try to persuade you to become a Calvinist. What I am here to do is to teach you from scriptures the divine, sovereign will of God so that you don't become a Calvinist, but you become a Biblicist. That's where the points came from, from the Bible. To refute the Arminians of that day. Most people don't know this because they don't study it. Historically, these are, known to, these are known as the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of what? Grace. All of salvation is of what? Grace. It's all grace. A to Z, grace. And the reason they're known as the doctrines of grace is because they embrace the very essence of God's absolute work in salvation. Man doesn't bring something to the table. God brings it all to the table. That's it. So if Arminianism is biblical, which it's not, then man merely cooperates with God. And he chooses to be born again. So this, in effect, becomes the sinner's contribution to his salvation. Rather than God providing faith as a gift, the sinner brings faith to God as a gift. Is any sinner going to bring a gift to God to save his own soul? No, he's not. And if that were the case, then the regenerating work of this Holy Spirit which causes a sinner to be born again is not needed. We don't need the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us then if we bring faith as a gift to God. Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. When you were physically born, did you have any part in your birth? Any say so? What color hair you wanted, kind of eyes, any of that? Did you have any say-so whatsoever? No, we did not, did we? We had no say-so in our physical birth. The same is true for our spiritual birth. You have no say-so. It's the divine, sovereign work of God. Difficult for the finite mind to grasp. I understand that. It's difficult for me to grasp, but it doesn't mean the Bible doesn't teach it. It clearly teaches it. That's all we're trying to convey here today. Because this verse 44 is a heavy verse. Jesus goes on to say the very same thing again in verse 65. If Jesus says something three times, it is, import is it important? Is it twice? What about once? Once is enough. Okay? Once is enough. So, it would be heretical to suggest that faith is not the gift of God alone. Man doesn't give God the gift of faith. Because if he did, he'd have something to boast about. If you bring anything to the table, you can boast. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, that what? That faith is not of yourselves. It, faith, is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should what? Boast. You can't boast in your salvation. If you bring something to the table, you can stand up against your unbelieving family and say, I'm smarter than you, I'm wiser than you, I'm better than you, because I chose Jesus and you didn't. You can't do that. We can't boast. The truth of Scripture repeatedly reveals for us what we're about to read through the very words of Jesus Christ that man is totally corrupt and therefore he's incapable of coming to Christ outside of God's, here it is, overruling power. No chance. Arminianism totally underestimates man's desperate need and therefore diminishes the exclusive provision of God's grace in salvation. 
It compromises the only message that can save man. It's a compromise. Now, unfortunately, many Christians today, I have friends who I love dearly, and they want to protest the sovereignty of God and salvation. Now, most of us have grown up in this ignorance. We've grown up and we've been taught this because it's been the most common teaching of the last 200 plus years, but that doesn't make it right. It doesn't line up with Scripture. So regardless of any grievances that one may have against Martin Luther or John Calvin or Calvinism or Reformed theology, it doesn't matter. Because what one must ask themselves and one must inquire is, what did Jesus and the inspired writers of Scripture declare as to man's ability to choose God? For man's ability to choose salvation. In verse 44, all we have to do is observe the teachings of Christ, beginning with the words, look at it, no one. No one. This is an all-inclusive claim. This is a universal negative. No one, without exception. No one can what? Can come. No one, all-inclusive, we understand that, which means no one. No one means no one. Can. The word can in English can be rather vague. We'll confuse it with the word may. Right? Mother, can I go out and play in the, in the snow? Well, son, I'm sure you can. What did I say? May or can? Oh, mother, can I go out and play in the snow? Son, I'm sure you can. But what you mean to ask is, may you go out and play? Okay, mother, may I? Yes, you may. The word can in Greek has to do with ability. It means to be able, to make possible. Which means that no one has the ability, no one has the possibility to come to Christ in and of himself. He cannot come to Christ on his own. So according to Jesus, there's no single individual that has the ability to come to him. There are not some who have the ability. There are not some who've had the ability in the past. There are not some who will have the ability in the future. No one can. No one in the world has ever or will ever have the ability unless unless a certain condition is met. Now look at it. Unless is a word that introduces an exception. This is an acceptive clause. Here we have the necessary condition. Here we have a prerequisite. Something must take place before something else can happen. So Jesus is saying that before anyone can come to him, something must happen. Simply. What's being taught here is that no individual has the ability in and of themselves to come to Christ outside of the power of God. Unless, he says, the Father who sent me draws him. Draws him. Now, some will horribly misinterpret the word draw here to mean this. That God comes and draws everybody equally. He comes and woos people. It's like throwing a peanut out to, to an animal. Come on, come on. Or try to get your dog here with, with a little bone. Come on. He's wooing them or trying to entice them to come to Him. That is not what the word draw means. You've probably grown up to think that or you've probably grown up to, and have been taught that. I was taught that. When I started to study Scripture years ago, I realized that that's not what it means. 
You can go look the words up yourself. You can get your Greek lexicon. You can go look them up. The word draw here does not mean woo. It does not mean entice or attract. It means this. It means to drag. It means to compel by irresistible superiority. The same Greek word is used elsewhere. In Acts 16, verse 19, after casting out a demon of a fortune teller, that tells you something about fortune telling, by the way, Paul and Silas roll in and they cast a demon out of a young girl who's a a, 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 um, fortune teller. Verse 19, But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Same Greek word, dragged, is the same Greek word, draw. They did not woo Paul and Silas into the marketplace to be beaten with rods because that's why they went into the marketplace. They dragged them there to be beaten. They didn't go, come on guys. They dragged them. James 2.6 It says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Same word. When the rich oppress, they do not woo or attract the poor for their selfish gain. They compel or they drag them into the courts. So draw here is an act of force. This is divine compulsion. No one, all-inclusive, can, has no ability to come to Christ unless, here's the exception, the Father draws, divinely compels or drags Him. That's the meaning of the text. These are the words of Christ. We see this throughout Scripture. Too many verses to share, but I'll just share a few. Matthew twenty-two fourteen: For many are called, but few are chosen. If you're in Christ, you're chosen. We preach the gospel to those who are chosen, but guess what? We don't know who they are, do we? So who do we preach to? Everybody. To everybody. Acts 13.48 And as many as had been appointed... The word appointed means ordained to. For as many as have been ordained to eternal life, guess what they did? They believed. Acts 16.14 You remember Lydia said the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things that were spoken by Paul. What did Paul have? The living active word of God. What did it take for her to comprehend them and internalize them and be transformed by them? The Lord opening her heart. When Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 verse verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Something must happen. Unless one is what? Born again. The word born again means to be born from above. It's the supernatural work of God coming down upon unbelieving man, causing that nature which is totally corrupt to be totally transformed. New life. Cannot see the kingdom. Question, how can anybody possibly obey the command to be born? How can anyone possibly obey the command to be born again if we're totally dead? Think about Lazarus in in, uh, John 11, which we'll get to in about a year. (laughs) Jesus stood outside of that tomb when he was four days dead and he said, Lazarus, what? Come forth! How did Lazarus obey that command? Because he did. 
He obeyed. How does a dead man respond? How can a spiritually dead man respond? To do it, to be born over like Lazarus was, or to do it and be born again spiritually, depends upon God doing it first. He has to act. Not only does He initiate, you know what else He does? He enables. He enables. So when the command of God comes out, it does not come by command alone. When the command goes out to be born, when the command goes out to be born again, they're able to respond because of His creative, converting, enabling work that causes you, enables you to respond to the command. And then there's a response. You know what that response is? Faith. Hope. Joy. Trust. And here's one. Fruit of someone who's been born again? Obedience. Do you have assurance of your salvation? Let me tell you, if you don't, you may struggle and you just need to go back to Scripture and stuff. But if you don't, it could be that you don't obey. And if you don't obey, you may not be saved. So you may be deceived into thinking you're saved when you're not. That's just Scripture. That's just truth. As you grow in Christ, let's say you are abiding in Christ, and you do have joy, but you're like, man, sometimes, I, I, I don't know. Well, we need to take you to Scripture to show you where you can be assured of your salvation. But a lot of people don't have assurance because they're not saved. They seek Jesus as this mob did, seeking His hand. They want a genie in a bottle that they can rub and have Him pop out. Oh, what can I do for you, Master? Fallen sinful humanity is not master. Christ is master. And if you're in Christ, you're a slave of Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. So question, have you been born again? You have a new heart? You have new desires? New passion? A love for the living God of the universe through His Son, Jesus Christ? If you're in Christ, you know when He chose you. He didn't choose you the day that you were born again. He chose you before the foundation of the earth. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundations of the earth that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of whose will? Not your will because you chose Jesus because of His will. That was His will. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 God has chosen you. Believer, context believer, God has chosen you from the beginning for what purpose? Salvation. Through sanctification. By the Spirit and faith in what? In truth. If He chose you, He draws you. When He draws you, He drags you. He pulls you from the throes of death. He doesn't woo you. To get water out of a deep well, you don't go, come on up, here's a cup. See the cup? Come on up. No. You throw a bucket down and you draw the water up. You drag it up to drink from it. In 1972, I was eight years old. I'm one of five kids. There was four of us that existed at the time. I had a little brother who was born later. We lived in a large house. Mom put us to bed one night, tucked us all in, and they had a dinner party that night. It was summer. It was hot. It was humid. Mom and Dad had a fan, one of those square fans in their bedroom window to have a little air brought in and 
<clears throat> circulate through the upstairs so that we could sleep comfortably because they loved us. Put us to bed and the, the intention was to have a dinner party. We're all upstairs, we're all put away, we're all safe, we're all sound, we're all in bed. They have a dinner party. Thunderstorm comes. In the Midwest, that's where I lived, very common. Thunderstorms come, crack, crack of lightning and thunder and winds blowing and in the middle of that storm they're having a dinner party, they're having a good time, we're safe, we're in our beds, we're not getting up crying, we're not afraid, we're dead asleep. Fan falls out of the window from the air, starts a fire on the floor. The, whole, the upstairs is on fire. Smoke's filling the upstairs. They have no idea. I'm laying in bed that night, I woke up, I knew I had to go to the bathroom, I had to go bad. I couldn't get up, my throat was killing me. And I was so groggy, I was like, oh, I'll just try to hold it. And I fell back asleep. In the meantime, with which I had no idea, my little sister, who was four, got up, walked downstairs, covered in soot, black from head to toe. My dad looks at her. My dad runs to the stairs. And he did not sit down at the stairs and woo us to come down. He did not say, kids, there's a fire, come on down, come on, come on, come on. This is a true story. All I remember, I was the oldest, so my dad had my little baby sister under one arm, my little brother, who was a year younger than me, under this arm, and he was dragging me by the arm down the stairs. The other sister was downstairs already. He dragged me to oxygen, to life-giving oxygen. He didn't try to compel me and, and, and urge me or woo me from the bottom of the stairs. He came and dragged me to life. God comes and He draws up. He drags those that are His to eternal life. Now at this point, at this point many will cry out, what about free will? Come on. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere, will you find the term free will, the free will of man, to where it's used in regard to the nature of man. Nowhere. All man's will can do in a sinful condition, like I spoke about at the beginning, is sin. That's all it knows how to do is to sin. If you're in Christ, your will is now free. It's been set free by the grace of God and you willfully serve God. You'll, you'll read about free will offerings in the Bible. You will not read about the free will of man to choose God anywhere. Just as water cannot run uphill, neither can man act contrary to his nature. Go down the street, Avante Street at the light. Stand at the bottom... Take a bucket of water, take a gallon of water, take a, a swimming pool, I don't care what you do, and pour it in the gutter. It's not going to go uphill. There's a family in the church that lives up there. It, they won't see it coming. It's not going to go uphill. Apart from God's drawing, nobody can come to Him. That is depravity. It's depravity. The fallen, depraved, darkened heart of man is powerless in grasping the superior righteous demands of the gospel. Can't do it. Lost sheep do not seek the shepherd. <laughs> you will not go out and see some stray, literal sheep somewhere that's lost, going, bah, looking for the master. He just keeps wandering further and further away and into deeper and darker danger. It's the shepherd that goes out to find the sheep. 
And the great shepherd came in a like manner. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man who's come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to seek, He came to teach, and He came to save His own. And this has always been the case with God. This isn't some new, just simple New Testament teaching. In verse 45, Jesus says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Did you get that? Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The heart is naturally hard, brothers and sisters, friends and family. The heart is naturally hard and will not accept God's invitation unless special work of God's grace takes place. It must be the initiating work of God. Man has no desire for God, his own sinful nature. Think about before you were saved, when you would hear the truth of God, it would just make you, oh, shut up. Oh, it just makes the hair crawl up on the back of your neck if you haven't. You know, it just makes you uncomfortable. You don't want to hear it. If you're irritated under the things of God, the teaching of God, oh, and you think you're saved, you probably aren't. This simply affirms the great truth of divine election. Now listen to this. When the Father chooses, He teaches. Notice, He says, Therefore everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. Those He chooses, He teaches. When He teaches, they learn. When they learn, they're drawn. When they're drawn, they come. When they come, Jesus receives them. When He receives them, He keeps them. And when He keeps them, He promises to raise them. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Isaiah 54.13 is what Jesus is referring to. This is the promise of final redemption. This is an insight, this is a teaching and an an illumination that must be implanted within the individual by the grace of God. Because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians that the natural man cannot understand the things of God. Why? Because they're foolishness to him. What is the cross to, to those who are natural, who are not saved? It is foolishness to them. It is today, if you're in Christ, what you embrace. It's no longer foolishness. It's the life-giving power of the gospel by the way of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, very important, when a person, I don't care who it is, if you're here today and you are genuinely, genuinely desiring to come to Christ, you are earnestly and honestly seeking the face of Christ, if that's the case, you will know the truth. Because you can only earnestly, honestly seek Him if God's drawing you. This mob in chapter 6 were seeking Jesus. They crossed the Sea of Galilee to chase Him down. They went into Capernaum to chase Him down. When they get there, they said, Wow, Lord, fancy meeting you here. We saw your disciples get in the boat. We didn't see you get in the boat. How'd you get over here anyhow? Jesus didn't explain. He had nothing to explain. He says, let me tell you something. The only reason you're seeking me is because you got your stomachs full yesterday and you're back for another load. That's it. He cuts. To the, he gets to the point. He doesn't mess around. No. 
When a person genuinely comes, earnestly desiring, wanting to know, wanting to be saved from their sin, wanting to be delivered from their depravity, they'll know the truth. Because it's the work of God. Hebrews 11.6 For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now at first glance, this may seem to contradict the teachings of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 that says, no one seeks after God. This may seem to contradict the teachings of Christ that no one can come unless the Father draws Him. They're not contradictions, they're two sides to the same coin. On one side, we understand clearly that it's God alone that enables man to believe. And prior to salvation, friends, prior to salvation, a person is spiritually dead. They are utterly incapable of responding to the gospel. That's Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Can you make yourself alive? No. But God, whose great mercy enabled us dead sinners to believe and delivered us from the grip of Satan, On the other hand, we see man believing God and receiving Christ for salvation. Verse 45, look at it. Every man, everyone, is singular. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes. Commentator F.F. Bruce writes, and I quote, Those who receive this divine illumination and respond to it, show by their coming to Christ that they are children and citizens of the New Jerusalem as the prophet foretold. End quote. Well, we're not going to get much further today. But look at verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. See, it's only Jesus Christ who can, can, who can claim inherent intimacy with the Father as the unique messenger, revealer, and mediator of the Father. Only Christ can. So regardless of what other people may teach in life, they may say, hey, you know, I've had this mystical experience with God. I know God. I talk to God. He comes and He talks to me in the middle of the night. I know God. I go out and sit under the tree and I talk to God right there. I talk to the tree. I'm talking to God. You know, and, and he spells stuff out for me when I lay on the hill and through, through the clouds and stuff. No, that's not knowing God. It's it, anything apart from the revelation that has been given in and through the Son, Jesus Christ, you don't know God. It says Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Who? No one comes to the Father except through me, he said. No one. So a person can only truly say that they are taught by God or they personally hear from God only if they truly hear Jesus because He's revealed the Father through what? Through the Word. And Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus said of Himself in John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So, if you claim to know God, you only know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. 
You've learned from Him. You've been taught by Him. He's drawn you to Himself. He's revealed Himself to you. And if He's revealed Himself to you, He's dragged you from the pit of hell and He's given you life and the Holy Spirit resides in you. And you, you show by your life that you have a relationship with Him because you bear fruit as someone who's saved. So only Jesus can claim authoritative knowledge of God the Father. Just as any human son you know, can claim such knowledge concerning his own father. There's only one kid in the entire world that can claim that I am their dad. Two kids, but one boy. I have a son. Only my son can say that that's my dad. Only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, declares that He's the Father, and I came to declare Him to earth. That's it. We'll get to the rest next time. But first of all, I want to say a couple things. I want you to stay with me here as I wrap up. As an unbeliever, Okay, if you're an unbeliever, if you made some cheap little prayer when you were a kid and that's all it has ever been, okay, you said some formulated prayer as a kid, there's nothing in your life that represents someone who's truly in Christ, you're an unbeliever. If you're a believer, you'll repent today. But if you're an unbeliever, and if you think that you can sit under the teachings of Christ and under the teachings of the Scriptures, the living Word of God, and that you can lay back in complacency and think in your mind, I'll just come to Christ when I want. If you think that, you are deceived. Tricked. Duped. Jesus said, no man comes to me unless he is drawn. You don't come when you want. See, hearing the truth of Jesus Christ, sitting under a church, a teacher who preaches the truth, is a very, very serious responsibility. Very serious. And where unbelief is the response of the gospel, and there's a turning away, you know what Jesus seems to do? He does not seem to make it easier. His teachings become more difficult to understand. That's the reason we opened with the parable of the soils this morning in Matthew 13. The seed goes out. The seed's always good. The seed's the word. Some seed goes out and it gets snatched away by the words. That represents the devil just taking it away. It never enters the ear gate of someone because they're so hard. Others fall on, on stony ground, just a little bit of soil. And it pops up and it says, man, I'll take some of that Jesus. I don't want to go to hell. I'll say that prayer. It pops up, but only for a short time. The sun comes out and it scorches and it withers and it dies, proving that it had no root, it had no life. As soon as opposition sets in, you're a Christian? Oh, I don't want to hear that. And you walk away. It was never true faith. The other falls upon um, amongst the weeds and the thorns, and it grows up. It's growing up, but it eventually gets choked out by the weeds, and that represents someone who loves the world, the world system and worldliness. It was never real. There was only one good soil. And that soil, the seed went out, the seed's the word, the seed's always good. It fell in that soil, and that soil was good, and it reproduced some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. It bore fruit. The problem's with the soil. I was different kinds of soil in my life. I was never saved until God redeemed me because He's the cultivator of the soil. And I pray that if you're an unbeliever today, that He's cultivating the soil and He'll break you. Because if you reject this teaching today, you'll walk away here and next time it might be more difficult to understand than easier to understand. Therefore, Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 12, but whoever does not have, even what he does have will be taken away from him. 
Therefore I speak to them in parables. Parables are riddles. Because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand. Seeing you will see and you will not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. So in parables, Jesus hides things from the wise and the prudent. And they are taken away into greater blindness. They're only wise and prudent or wise and cautious in their own prideful eyes. Well, I'm just cautious about some of that. That's pretty some heavy authoritative teaching. That guy's pretty bold up there. Who does he think he is? Who does God think he is? He declares who he is. These are simply the judicial truths of Jesus Christ. You must, believers, you must proclaim this gospel. This is the biblical gospel. Gospel means what? good news. The only reason it's good news is because there is bad news. And if you don't clearly communicate the bad news, what good is the good? It's not just say this prayer in your heart. No. That's not the gospel. Remember how Pharaoh hardened his heart against God? Remember God sent Moses in to Egypt? And he gave a multiplication of signs and wonders so that the Egyptians might know who he is? Remember that? And what happened? Pharaoh hardened his own heart. What happened after that? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. You know what God did? He didn't implant evil in it. God does not do that. What God does and what it means that God hardened his heart is that he turns the sinner over to the condition of his heart. He turns him over to the condition of that soil. To where you can't believe. That's Romans 1. God turns people over to a depraved mind. That's a bad, dangerous place to be. So may you not be the recipient of God's judicial hardening to where you can't believe. True belief is to repent and believe and follow Christ. You will have a hunger for the things of God. You want to be around God's people. You will bear fruit of someone who's saved. So I ask you, if today, maybe for the first time in your life, you've been awake and all of a sudden you have a deep, passionate, heartfelt desire for Jesus Christ and you sit here today, or for some time now, maybe weeks, You've heard the clear gospel. Do you desire Him? If you desire Him today, this is what I say to you. Come to Christ. Call out to Him for mercy. Turn from your sin. Repent of your sin and unbelief. Call on Christ. Receive Him as Lord. Submit your life to Him and you shall be saved. Saved. If you're a believer, don't forget verse 37. All that the Father gives me will what? Come. You've come to Christ because He's drawn you to Himself. He's enabled you to believe. You are a gift of the Father to the Son. A gracious gift of the Father to the Son. You're a child of God. You've been gifted with eternal life. You've been gifted by the grace of God. He chose you. He predestined you. He called you. He redeemed you. He regenerated you. He indwells you. And He empowers you to live a life that glorifies Him. And when you die, you'll step into glory.
because of what Christ has done to restore that decrepit, rotten, sinful nature so that you could have a nature that is of Christ. That's the gospel. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him to me. Rejoice in that today, brothers and sisters. If you don't know Christ, I urge you to come to Christ. May you not become hardened as we all stand together and pray together for his gospel and thanks. Father, I thank you for your truth. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that although we are totally incapable of coming in our own strength, that you enable us to come. You call us to come. You give us life to come. You transform us. You change us by your grace. That you went to the cross that we may have life. I thank you for that. I thank you for the believers here this morning that make up your church. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here right at this moment that doesn't know you, I pray that you'll invade their very lives. Convict them, Lord. And I pray that if they're convicted and today they want this mercy, they want this grace, that you'll grace them to call out to you and receive the gracious gift of the Father, the very Son of God. Lord, please save their soul. And may we, Lord, together as believers, proclaim the true gospel. May we understand that although you're sovereign in salvation, you choose to use us as proclaimers of that gospel. That you will work in spite of us, but you choose not to work apart from us. And Lord, for those that are lost in our lives, may we be ever mindful to constantly pray for their salvation, as we know, and pray because it's only you that can change them. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If today, for the first time, you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, because the first time is the only time, please come and inquire, and we'll give you something to help you in your new walk with understanding what God did in your life today. And don't hesitate to do that. It's very important. God bless all the rest of you. Bless you in Christ this week. Merry Christmas, and we'll see you next week.